So what we are seeing is, you know, 2022 was the year of inflation. 2022 was the year of the Fed being very aggressive. It was the year of treasury yields rising. It was the year of profit margins collapsing. And all of those trends, any one of them alone would hurt stocks, but all of them came together in 2022 to cause the stock market crash that we've been through over the past 12 months. What's happening right now is we're getting a fundamental turning point in every single one of those trends. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing after a week off. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, I know you were on vacation last week. How was that? Uh, it was good. We um, we went to Disneyland. Um, took the little kid to Disneyland. It was it rained on us. That was amazing. But when it rains at Disneyland, it's mm-hmm. awesome because all the lines go away. So a 45-minute wait becomes a 10-minute wait, and an hour wait becomes a 20-minute wait. It's fantastic. If you want to do Disneyland right, go when it rains, but maybe (laughs) not with a two-year-old because that adds complications. But in any Hmm. event, it was a fantastic week, and even more importantly, uh, the stock market rallied very strongly into the end of the week because of weak inflation numbers and is continuing to rally big this week because of weak inflation numbers. So Disneyland stock market rally, I'm feeling pretty good right now, Aaron. So thank you. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I'm definitely ready to dive back into all things HGI. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, vertical farming, inflation, the housing market, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Luke, let's start off with something you told us a few weeks ago. Essentially, yeah. you illustrated that the stock market was like a coiled spring that was ready to bounce big into the end of the year and carry that rally into 2023. And now it looks like that rally could be underway. Like you said, stocks surged last week. They're soaring again this week. Question is, is this a head fake or the start of a big rally that you've been expecting? Right, Aaron. Yeah, so I think it's the latter. And I think it's the latter because the macroeconomic trends are fundamentally and noticeably shifting. Um, So what we are seeing is, you know, 2022 was the year of inflation. 2022 was the year of the Fed being very aggressive. It was the year of treasury yields rising. It was the year of profit margins collapsing. And all of those trends, any one of them alone would hurt stocks, but all of them came together in 2022 to cause the stock market crash that we've been through over the past 12 months. What's happening right now is we're getting a fundamental turning point in every single one of those trends. And this turn should be a turn into another 12, 24, 36 months of these trends completely unwinding. 
therefore setting the stage for a massive and prolonged stock market rally. So the first of those is inflation, obviously. Inflation in 2022 has done nothing but get hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter, and it stayed very hot. Now, what we're seeing today is inflation is starting to turn a corner. We are seeing CPI numbers come down meaningfully. We are seeing PPI numbers come down significantly. So consumer and producer inflation is decelerating. You're getting disinflation there. And that's before the biggest component of inflation, shelter, housing costs, rents, have really rolled over. And pretty much everybody expects those to roll over in the next three, six, nine, twelve months. So when those start to roll over, you couple that with falling energy prices, oil is still below ninety dollars and you know it's staying in that 80, 45, 86 range. When you couple put all those things together, the stage is set for massive disinflation over the next 12 months. So the inflation trend, rising inflation in 22 is going to become falling inflation in 23. Now, what is that going to prompt? Well, you're going to get a second reversal, which is a Fed reversal. In 2022, the Fed has done everything to tooth and nail fight inflation. Hiking rates, 75 basis points, 75 basis points, 75 basis points. The era of 75 basis point hikes, though, is now coming to an end. They're going to go 50 in December. So that's already a step down. Now, if inflation continues to crash in the way that it's crashing right now, which we expect it to, then in 23, the Fed is going to start to pivot from hiking rates very aggressively to slowing their rate hikes to pausing on rate hikes to eventually maybe even cutting rates. So in 2022, you had rising inflation and an increasingly aggressive Fed. In 23, you're going to get falling inflation and an increasingly less aggressive Fed, an increasingly more friendly Fed. So that's the second big trend reversal we're going to see. The third big trend reversal we're going to see is yields. Treasury yields, bond yields are going to follow suit. They follow inflation and they follow the Fed. When, the, when inflation is rising and the Fed is super aggressive, yields rise. We've seen the 10-year Treasury yield go from about 1% all the way to you know 4% these days. It's been an absolute surge in treasury yields. Now in 23, if indeed inflation does fall, if indeed the Fed becomes less aggressive, then treasury yields will follow suit. And what was 1% to 4% in 2022 will be 4% back to 2%, maybe even 1.5% in 23. So you're going to get that yield crash. So recap, 2022, rising inflation, increasingly aggressive Fed, rising treasury yields, 2023, falling inflation, increasingly friendly Fed, and falling treasury yields. That's a big macroeconomic pivot. Now you layer on top of that profit margins. In 2022, corporate profit margins have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And that's because it's not because of a slowing economy. It's because one, inflation is really hot. So input prices are high for these firms. And two, they all over hired during the pandemic. So they've had these bloated uh, employee basis, which has led to bloated payroll and bloated operating expenses. But what are we getting now? One, inflation is turning to disinflation. So input costs for these firms should fall in 2023. And two, you're getting a bunch of layoffs. 
Meta, 11,000 layoffs. Amazon, 10,000 layoffs. Twitter can't half the workforce. Opendoor had massive layoffs. Stripe had big layoffs. Lyft had big layoffs. Disney had big layoffs. Mm-hmm. FedEx just furloughed a bunch of drivers. So you're seeing layoffs happening everywhere. What that's going to do is it's going to decrease the employee basis for these firms. It's going to decrease their operating expenses, and it's going to recreate positive operating leverage. So profit margins will expand in 2023. So basically what I'm, what I'm seeing here, Aaron, is that all of the fundamental macroeconomic trends that drove stocks significantly lower in 2022 are either already turning around or are about to turn around in a pretty big way. And in three, six, nine, 12 months, all of these trends will have fully reversed course. Inflation will be on the way out. The Fed won't be hiking rates. Yields won't be surging. And profit margins will be re-expanding. So Wall Street's Mm -hmm. a discounting mechanism. It looks ahead. The fact that the Mm -hmm. market is sniffing out all of these trend reversals before they fully materialize is no surprise. And that's why you're seeing stocks rally in such a significant Manner. And on that point, the final thing I want to say here is that the price action we're seeing is remarkable. Like the market is really sniffing this out right now. So mm-hmm. last Thursday, when the CPI report came in lighter than expected, I mean, we had a massive rally. The S&P 500 rose, let me pull it up here. It rose 5.54%. That's mm-hmm. a huge guy, 5.5%. Mm-hmm. That is the S&P 500's. 15th best day of all time. So all time, 15th best day. That is a huge, huge rally. Now, what it did was a 5% plus rally in the midst of a bear market. So not only did we rally 5%, but we were down huge coming into it and then we rallied 5%. So it was a big sort of reversal day. The S&P 500 before last Thursday had done that 19 times since 1950. So over 72 years of data, it had done what it did last Thursday, 19 separate times. 18 of those times, stocks were higher a year later. The average return, 30%. So 95% of the time, the stock market did what it did last Thursday, stocks were higher a year later by an average of 30%. The only time... It didn't rally. Stocks didn't rally after a day like yesterday in history was back in September 2008 on the heels of the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy. And we don't have a Lehman Brothers bankruptcy just hiding around the corner Mm -hmm. in in traditional finance right now. So I don't (laughs) think that example is pertinent to today. And even if you do look at that example, go 15, 16 months out and stocks were higher from that moment, from that day. So this is basically a 100% accurate indicator saying, hey, what stocks did last Thursday tends to lead to, precede very large gains in the stock market. Now let's follow that up. What did we do on Friday? Stocks rallied again on Friday. So not only did we have this massive 5% rally on Thursday, but we had another big rally on Friday. And as a basketball player, I'm always taught just as important as how you shoot the ball is how you follow through. The follow-through is very important. We also want to see follow-through in the market. Yes, it's great to have a big rally. It's great to have a 5.5% up day. But what are we going to do the next day? What's the follow-through? Well, we rallied again. 
So then I look back at the data. Okay, let's look at all those 19 times before when the SEO 500 rallied more than 5% in a single day while in a bear market. Now let's take that data and further filter it to, okay, we rally 5% a day in a bear market and then we rally the next day too. How many times has that happened? That's happened seven times before. Mm-hmm. 100% of the time, seven for seven, stocks were higher a year later with an average return of 36%. So what the stock market did to end last week, Thursday and Friday, 5% rally in a bear market, up day the next day. What the stock market did last week, it has done seven times before in history. All seven times stocks were higher a year later with an average return of 36%. That is very powerful price action. And the third thing I want to mention is with respect to price action, let's talk mm-hmm. about the breadth of the price action. Because maybe the S&P 500 was up 5.5%, but that was because Apple, Amazon, the mega caps you know, lifted it. Not the case. All stocks participated in the rally. It was an everything rally. In fact, it was such a powerful everything rally that the percent of stocks on the New York Stock Exchange, on the NYSE, trading above their 200-day moving average is now above 40%. That's significant because just a few weeks ago, that number was below 15%. So we have Mm -hmm. swung from less than 15% of stocks trading above their 200-day moving average to more than 40% of stocks trading above their 200-day moving average in a matter of weeks. That is a violent swing higher. And it only happens when bear markets and, and new bull markets are born. And specifically, it has happened. The data for this goes back to the early 1990s, around 1990-91. So over the past 32 years, this violent swing, this breadth thrust from less than 15% of stocks trading above the 200-day to more than 40% has happened six different times. Each time, stocks were higher a year later with an average return of 23%. So... What I'm looking at then is not just this fundamental reversal in all of the trends that have been killing stocks in 2022 towards them becoming tailwinds in 2023, but also just as important as me seeing those trends is me looking at the market and saying the market agrees. Mr. Market agrees with it. (laughs) Mr. Market is buying the dip today, buying Mm -hmm. the dip last week, buying the dip right now, like it's only done before when bear markets are about to turn into new bull markets. That is really convincing data, in my opinion. And the fact that we're up another, you know, two and a half percent on the NASDAQ today, one and a half percent on the S&P today because of the soft PPI data. You know, I'm sure if I factor that into the analysis I just I just showed you would come up with even more bullish results. So the fact of the matter is there are a lot of reasons to be strongly optimistic about the stock market over the next 12 months. That's not saying it's a sure thing. There is no such thing as a sure thing in the market. A black swan event could emerge and totally just, you know, first time ever that these things have happened and we still go lower. That's Mm -hmm. totally an option. But we have to play the probabilities. And the probabilities right now say that there is an overwhelming chance stocks soar over the next 12 months. So you got to position your portfolios for that rally. That's my two cents. Uh. Great analysis. Uh, quick question. I want to take it back just a little bit. Uh, right. Talking about uh, all the trends that are starting to reverse. Um, right. Looking at 
some of the layoffs that you talked about, all the big mm-hmm. companies having massive layoffs uh, right. in a very seems like all at once. Is there a reason yeah. why all these separate companies are doing these layoffs all right now? And does that tailwind into your analysis of what's the, of this upcoming potential rebound? Yeah, because the economy is is really slowing now. That mm-hmm. layoffs are always the last thing to happen in the slowdown. Um, because people, I mean, if you're a boss and you're a good boss, and a lot, there are a lot of good bosses out there, the last thing you want to do is fire people. I mean, you hire these people, you brought them on, they're going to build your company, they're going to help you grow. The last thing you want to do is fire them. You're willing to cut back on marketing budgets. You're willing to cut back on software spend. You're willing to cut back on IT. You're willing to cut back on travel, uh, you know, dinners, all that stuff. But firing somebody, I mean, come on. That, that's like, that's the one thing you don't want to do. That's the one place you don't want to go. So companies always wait till the very end of a, till the very end to start firing people. They wait for the kind of, it's the last signal for them. It's like, okay, things are really getting tough now. So we got to fire people. And that's where a lot of companies are that things are really getting tough for S and P 500 companies for large corporations and for startups as well. You're seeing economic demand slow. You're seeing people worried about the fed. You're seeing people worried about inflation. You're seeing these worries fester and turn into lower spending, turn into a slower economy, turn into lower economic activity. And as a result of all that, Companies are finally responding by saying, okay, we've cut our software spend, we've cut our IT, we've cut our marketing budgets. I guess we got to start firing people now. So that's why you're seeing all these kind of unique companies, unrelated companies, and some of them are very related as well, announcing major layoffs. Um, it's happening in Disney, it's happening at FedEx, it's happening at Meta, it's happening at, at, at Amazon. You know, it's happening across the economy, across different sizes, it's happening everywhere. And the reason that that is somewhat, I mean, it's, it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing for people to lose their jobs. But one of the reasons it is, it is a positive thing for the medium-term outlook for the economy and the stock market is that the Fed always capitulates when the labor market turns. It's easy for the Fed to keep hiking interest rates and fight inflation with both gloves on in the boxing ring. If your stocks are going down, they don't care. If you, the, your value of your home is down 2 3 4 5%, they don't care. Besides, they're <laughs> helping out the new home buyers. Um, if, uh, you know, if Wall Street execs and hedge fund managers and all those people are screaming, stop raising rates, stop raising rates, they don't care. They don't care about any of that stuff because it doesn't impact the average Joe. The average Joe is not sitting there checking the stocks every day. The average Joe is not sitting there worrying about Wall Street every day. The average Joe is not there sitting worrying about his home or her home value every single day. But the average Joe does clock into a nine to five every day. That's what the average Joe does. So when the average Joe loses that, when the average Joe loses his or her income, his or her salary, his or her livelihood, his or her well-being, his or her ability to provide for his or her family, that's real pain experienced by Main Street. That is when the Fed always throws in the towel. Every time unemployment rates start to creep higher, the Fed says enough. We can't hurt average Joe. We need to start cutting. We need to stop hiking. We need to do what we can to help average Joe. So that's why labor market weakness is actually what the economy needs to have a good outcome here 
Yes, it's going to cause some short-term pain. And yes, my sympathies and prayers go out to those who do lose their jobs and what is going to be probably a pretty big firing trend over the next six months. But what that sets the stage for is the Fed to finally throw in the towel, capitulate on their rate hiking campaign, put the economy back on track to grow in 23, 24, 25, and for job destruction, turn back into job growth and all those people that lose their jobs to find new jobs with better job security. So in a 12-month outlook, it is maybe a really good thing that these companies are finally cutting back on that because it is exactly the medicine the Fed needs to take to stop its rate hiking campaign. So that's why the layoffs are happening. That's how it impacts my stock market outlook. As soon as I start seeing those layoff announcements, that's when I started to be like, okay, this is this is a real turning point for the economy, for the market, for the Fed. Um, and, the, and Mr. Market's going to sniff it out before it happens. So we're going <laughs> to rally before these things happen. And then that's what, what's going on. I think the consensus belief right now is, I mean, the futures market prices things in a little bit differently. But when you talk to traders and you kind of feel what, what people are actually really thinking, it's... The Fed goes 50 in December and then may actually be completely done. That by February, they may not even hike. That seems to be what, you know, with the data is shifting in a manner that implies as such. Because when unemployment rates go up, and unemployment did rise in the last labor report, went up 20 basis points. When unemployment rates start to rise, this is not like, a, let's just, you know, hike up the mountain. This is a steep climb that unemployment mm. rates don't rise gradually. They spike. They go up by about 20, 30, 40 basis points a month. So if we're at three, seven a day and it keeps rising 20, 30, 40 a month, we'll be at four, four and a half by the time the Fed is looking at its decision in February. So if that's the case, and I think the Fed can't, it can't go. There's going to be a lot of Main Street pressure, a lot of media pressure, a lot of political pressure for the Fed to stop hiking rates by February. So I think that is a very realistic outcome. That's what the market's sniffing out. That's why we're rallying. That's how all the firings and layoffs you're talking about tie mm -hmm. back into the, the market outlook over the next 12 months. Gotcha. Okay. So with this expected rally into 2023, 24, 25, uh, I want to touch base in uh, – if this translates into the crypto market, we kind of stayed right. away from a while, mostly just because it's been kind of stagnant. Nothing's really happened. Um, but we recently just had the FTX fiasco. Uh, yes. Bitcoin has broken below $20,000 pretty empathetically. So do cryptos bounce with stocks in 2023 or are they just taking a tumble right now? Do cryptos bounce with stocks in 2023? My belief is yes. Um, and... I think that they will actually produce potentially better returns than stocks in 2023, despite the recent fiasco. So I think one thing we have to understand is that the FTX fiasco feels like the end of the world today for crypto believers, for crypto investors, for crypto watchers. Um, but so did Terra five months ago. And when Terra hit, it felt like the end of the world. People were screaming. People were calling this the end. <laughs> And within two or three months, actually, like within 30 days, the world forgot about it and moved on to the next thing. That's how these things work, that crises happen and then the world moves on. world keeps spinning, the sun rises, sun sets, tide comes in, tide goes out. The world keeps on living. And that's what's going to happen with cryptos, that 
over the next month, we're going to talk about it. And then by December, we'll forget about it. And then by January, February, cryptos are going to be driven by the macro action. If the Fed pivots dovish, if inflation crashes, if yields crash, cryptos are going to rally regardless of what FTX did today or FTX did last week or FTX didn't do last week. <laughs> you know, that is that's throughout the situation. What is going to drive cryptos is the macroeconomics I just talked about. So if those macroeconomics do indeed improve in the way that I'm expecting them to, falling inflation, rising inflation turns into falling inflation. Aggressive Fed turns into dovish Fed. Rising yields turn into falling yields. Profit margins collapsing. Profit margins turn into expanding profit margins. If all those things happen, then cryptos are going to rally in 2023. And if there's one thing we know about cryptos, it's that when they rally, they rally. They don't rally. They rally. They go bananas. They go nuts. So they go parabolic. And I think that's what's going to happen. A lot of people out there are saying, okay, but trust is broken. Luke, trust is broken. Trust is broken. I agree with you. Trust is broken. But you want to know what's a more powerful emotion than trust? Greed. <laughs> and people know. They recognize that you can make money in cryptos. They've seen it before in previous boom cycles. What was In the 2010s, the quickest mm. way to make a ton of money was to invest in cryptos at the right time. That's just a fact. QED, done, end of story, full stop. The quickest way to make money in the 2010s was to invest in cryptos at the right time. People know that. They understand that. They're waiting for the next boom cycle. As soon as they see a boom cycle get started, man, greed is going to overwhelm and they're going to get in. I, I read an analogy once. Not, I didn't read it. I was actually out to dinner with a friend and he told me this. And I, I kind of agree with him. He's, he's not a big crypto believer. I am a big crypto believer. I do believe in the blockchain. I do believe in cryptos too. Um, to do good for our society and generate a lot of economic value in the long term. But what he said, which kind of gave me faith in saying, you know what, there's definitely a boom cycle coming, is that at the very worst, assume no blockchain project works. Assume cryptos are forever a complete scam. Assume all of this is a joke. At the very worst, cryptos will still boom once every few years because they're just a better version of online gambling. And slots have not gone away. Vegas is still a massive thing. Atlantic City is still a massive thing. Macau is still a massive thing. People are greedy. If they have an opportunity to make money, they're going to capitalize on that opportunity to make money. So in the worst case scenario to me, which I think is totally unlikely, but even in the worst case scenario, mm. cryptos still have a massive boom cycle every few years because – Somebody turns on the, the, the money printer, somebody turns on the, the greed, somebody turns on the, the risk sentiment, and boom, everybody rushes in there to become a millionaire overnight or a millionaire in a couple months or a millionaire in a couple quarters, whatever it may be. That is the worst case outlook for, for cryptos and Bitcoin. Your cat's out of the bag. You're not putting it back in. All these people saying Bitcoin's going to zero, complete nonsense because casinos are still around. If anything, <laughs> crypto... In the worst case scenario, cryptocurrencies stick around as online gambling and bankrupt Vegas. That's honestly what happens, seriously. So I think that that gives me confidence in a boom cycle coming in 2023. But beyond that, that's not what I believe. I don't believe that's what's going to happen. I do believe that cryptocurrencies do have a fundamental value, that they are the, the key technological paradigm to building freer, fairer, faster um, ecosystems, processes, products, services, 
So I do think that the boom cycle that's coming in 2023 will last for a few years. It'll extend into the happening in, in 2024. And that from where Bitcoin is today, I think we're close to a bottom right here around $15,000, $16,000. I think that $100,000 is very reachable within you know 12 to 24 months. So I think cryptos do join the massive everything rally in 2023. And I think they could be actually some of the biggest winners in 2023 alongside hypergrowth tech stocks. So I think that now is probably a really good time to, if you haven't thought about it, at least start thinking about buying the dip in crypto. Um, and if you are in crypto, now is a good time to stay the course and maybe even add a little bit. Um, I am bullish on cryptos in 2023. Okay. So with, again, this expected rally in both the stock market and the crypto market going into 2023, let's say this big rally materializes, what's going to work? And more importantly, or just as importantly, what's not going to work? As right, far so as I, I think so. Again, I talked about um, 2022, 2023. It's all about like a reversal, right? It's, it's a reversal of trends mm -hmm. that all the trends that were pertinent throughout 2022 will disappear and actually reverse course in 2023. So massive trend reversal. That's the theme for 2022 to 2023, trend reversal. And by the same token, right? what worked in financial markets is going to reverse course entirely, in my opinion. So what worked exceptionally well in 2022? Energy, oil, mm -hmm. commodities. They're going to crash in 23. I think they're done. That trade has run its course. It's maxing out. I just saw some of the 13F filings from hedge funds. They are cashing out on oil. So I think oil is done. We, we, we were, you know, on this podcast, we came out and said short oil at 120 and now it's crashed down to 85. <laughs> so thank God we did that. That was a fabulous call. But I think that the oil stocks have actually remained pretty resilient. Oil and gas stocks remain pretty resilient despite oil crashing as much as it has. I think that resilience is about to end. I think the oil and gas ETF is forming a double top of sorts. I think it's going to come crashing down in 2023. I think that's a terrible trade. So I think that that is not going to work in 2023. Bonds, I think that is going to work exceptionally well in 2023. Short bonds has been a fantastic trade in 2022 as yields have, have you know surged, but I think yields are going to come crashing down in 2023. So I think long bond is going to work very, very well in 2023. Uh, housing. Housing has been absolutely crushed in 2022 because of rising interest rates. Then it reasons that either stable-ish or falling interest rates will push the housing market or housing stocks at the very least exceptionally higher in 2023. So I think those are our stocks that will work very, very well um, next year, especially because mortgage rates will front run the Fed. So if the market starts to sniff out a Fed pivot, mortgage rates will collapse before the Fed actually does pivot. So I think that is definitely um, in the works, uh, housing market rebound. Um, I think things like hypergrowth tech stocks that have been absolutely hammered. Kathy Woods, ARK ETF, absolutely hammered. E-commerce stocks, absolutely hammered. Cloud stocks, absolutely hammered. I think those stocks are going to really have a renaissance in in the in 2023. And on that note, one of the things I think that people forget about is like, let, let's rewind back to 2020, 2021. Um and even 2019, 2018, 2017, like the market at that point in time was so excited 
about all of these emerging technologies. The market was so excited about the cloud. The market was so excited about AI. The market was so excited about e-commerce. The market was so excited about robotics. The market was so excited about self-driving, about the metaverse, about all these. The market was so excited about these emerging technologies because they were freaking cool technologies that had the potential to create enormous economic empires. That reality has not changed. But in 2022, we kind of forgot all about it because of inflation. Inflation put Mm. the roaring 2020s for technological innovation on hold. (laughs) But now inflation is going bye-bye. And as inflation goes bye-bye, that hold is going to come up. And we're going to finally see all these technologies come to the forefront and the market get really excited about them and the stock start to work very, very well. You have to, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. People are like, oh, it was all, it was all hype. It was all, cause you know, it was Fugazi Fugazi. And people said that about the internet as well. People say that about all these emerging technologies. There's a reason people get excited about emerging technologies when they emerge. You know, it's not like any old technology emerges and everyone's excited about it. No, these things went through a process. They went through an innovation cycle and then the market got really excited about them. There's a reason for that because they're really exciting technologies with a lot of long-term potential. Was it overhyped? Absolutely. All those technologies were overhyped in 2020, 2021, but they were still very legitimate technologies. Now the hype's been washed out. All of this has been based. All of this is down at very depressed valuation levels. And the reason that all of this has been wiped out, inflation is going bye-bye. So now we're looking at basically a massive open field for these stocks, for these technologies, for these companies to grow like wildfire over the next three, four, five, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years from really depressed valuation basis. I love that setup. So what works well in 2023, I think will work well into 2030. That we had this really weird period, 2020 pandemic hit, 2021, we're trying to climb out of it, but we kind of overdo the climb out of it. A lot of money printing, a lot of supply chain uh, bottlenecks. 2022, massive inflation, borderline recession, Fed goes crazy. Like this has been the weirdest freaking three years ever, man. Like the weirdest three years. (laughs) So the fact that the market's been acting all volatile and crazy is like that's par for the course given what's going on in this, the macro economy, the, the world, the globe right now in society. All that now is about to normalize. Inflation is sort of the last – it's the last holdover effect of the pandemic. That, you know, we, people have moved on from masks. People have moved on from, from being all worried about hanging out with each other, from social distancing, uh, from trap, from not traveling. People have moved on from all those things. The one holdover from the pandemic is inflation. That inflation soared because of things we did during the pandemic. One, printed a bunch of money. And two, supply chains got shut down because of so, so, social distancing measures. <clears throat> so the last holdover effect of the pandemic is is inflation and now that's about to get eradicated so by 2023 i think all the effects of a world stopping pandemic in march 2020 will have fully washed through the economy and we're going to have a clean slate from which we can enter a new prolonged era of economic expansion a new prolonged bull market and i believe as i did in 2018 2019, 2020, 2021, and 2022, that this new bull market will be defined by the convergence of multiple new 
technologies that will rapidly redefine society. By 2030, we will be in self-driving cars. By 2030, there will be flying taxis pretty much in every major city. By 2030, we will be able to modify the code of life in terms of certain organisms in the same way that we modify the code of computers and, and inanimate objects today. So we're going to see a lot of change, technologically speaking, over the next seven years. And now that inflation is going away, the market can finally reward all that change, all that disruption, all that growth potential. And so I'm really excited about 2023, not just in terms of it's going to be a great year for technology stocks, for growth stocks, for a lot of things that were beaten up in 2022, but it could be the start, should be the start of a great decade for all that stuff. So I'm really excited about what the next three months brings and what it means for the next five, 10 years. Okay, so it sounds like you're bullish on emerging technology fields really coming back with a vengeance in 2023. On that note, uh, I read an interesting article the other day talking about how Bosch is using IBM quantum computers to make EV materials. Uh, first question, how does that work? And second follow-up, sounds like a pretty big deal, right? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool stuff. Um, so what's going on over there is... Obviously, the supply of materials, specifically rare earth minerals needed to make um, electric vehicles, lithium ion batteries specifically, so batteries for energy storage systems as well, is obviously limited. I mean, there's not an infinite amount of lithium on this planet, not an infinite amount of cobalt, not an infinite amount of magnesium and all that stuff. So um, it's limited and, and where it comes from is also very unique. So we have to go through some geopolitical challenges there. So the, the supply of minerals for batteries is a huge issue right now. And there are a lot of companies trying to fix that issue. Now, what, what Bosch is doing, which is really interesting, is they're trying to leverage quantum computers to create simulations that allow us to recreate the composition of rare earth minerals and actually manufacture them in labs from things that are not rare earth minerals, from more abundant materials and more locally sourced materials. Now, that would be amazing. It's a long shot and we're very early in the process, but that would be absolutely amazing if as opposed to, you know, going to the Congo to get cobalt um, or going to China to get lithium, we could just take sand from a beach in North Carolina <laughs> and somehow make that in an electric vehicle battery by recreating the composition of lithium, recreating the chemistry of lithium. Like that would be a really novel, amazing world changing technological breakthrough. And it's empowered by quantum computers. Now, the, the way it's empowered by quantum computers is because it's all simulations, right? When you have mm -hmm. a quantum computer, uh, it can run infinitely more simulations, infinitely fast, infinitely more accurate simulations than a classical computer. So if you were running simulations like this on a classical computer, you're basically being asked to, to build a home with a shovel, and that's all. Now, with a quantum computer, you're being asked to build a home with an entire construction crew. So that's basically what's going on here, mm -hmm. and that's why they're using quantum computers to do that and why it is the only viable path forward for um, for accomplishing something so so enormous. But the fact that they're doing that and other companies are using uh, quantum computers, other automakers are actually using quantum computers to figure out how to better engineer um, a longer lasting battery, uh, the thousand mile battery, the long sought after thousand mile battery. 
Um, it all comes back to this idea that quantum computers are finally at a point where they can be useful in the real world. It's not just a theory. It's not just something Einstein got stumped by a hundred years ago. You know, this <laughs> is a real thing now with real applications and real value adds and companies are just now starting to figure out how do you extract that value? So it's the first inning of the ball game for quantum computing. And I think there is a long and promising ball game ahead for investors in quantum computing stocks. So it's not a quick hit. It's not a instant winner. But if you have time mm -hmm. on your side and you're willing to wait and let it marinate, now is as good a time as ever to buy quantum computing stocks and see where they go in the next three, four, five years. I think the gains could be pretty tremendous as quantum computing goes from this thing that sounds really cool that some companies are using to a ubiquitous must-have technological add-on for all enterprises. That's a transition that will cause these stocks to soar if it does happen. So I think now is a pretty good time to, to roll on in to those quantum computing stocks. It, it sounds like a complete coalescence of all the things that you that we talk about that you love to talk about all the big tech automation evs ai simulation quantum computing um right, right. It, yeah i i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's a coalescence so much as it's the it's a catalyst for all of them that all okay. what, what do all of these technologies have in common they're built on computers right mm -hmm. automation software automation hardware is all built on on a computing program um, DNA sequencing, all that stuff, synthetic biology is built on computing programs, um, artificial intelligence, uh, voice AI, uh, all that stuff built on computer programs. Uh, even when you're launching rockets into space and communicating with them, that's built on computer programs. So when you fundamentally change the computer program into something infinitely better, faster, stronger, more powerful, you accelerate all these technologies by tenfold. So by investing in quantum computing, you're not just investing in something that all these technologies are going to need, but you're investing in something that if it works, is going to take these technologies to a whole new playing field, every single one of them. So it's not the coalescence so much as it's the foundation, the fundamental change of the foundation upon which these technologies are built. So that's the kind of common thread there. Okay. Uh, I also saw that one of your favorite metaverse stocks, Matterport, mm -hmm. popped big last week on earnings. Any right. comments there? Um, yeah, Matterport had, had a, got a great quarter. You know, Matterport is the metaverse done right, in my opinion. Um, I, you know, I, I think what Meta is building is going to have some value someday, um, but I don't think it's it's the the biggest near-term value. I think the biggest near-term value out of virtual reality, augmented reality, extended reality technology is digital twins, that you need to build digital, you don't need to build digital twins, but building digital twins can add a lot of value to people who own real estate properties today, whether that's commercial real estate owners, restaurant owners, uh, residential uh, owners. Um, it makes a lot of sense that digital twin technology to monitor and keep track of your spaces or even sell your spaces in a more immersive, interactive way. Uh, hotels are using that now. So Matterport to me is the metaverse done right. It's the first few innings of the metaverse revolution. And, and I think that's that's where a lot of the growth is going to happen. Matterport is executing very well right now. Um, revenue growth is reaccelerating. Margins are re-expanding. Supply chain issues are are getting uh, significantly. They're significantly improving. Um, their product revenue growth is turning around. Soft revenue growth it look, looks strong. Uh, subscriber growth is strong. Spaces under management growth is strong. So the growth trends there seem to be stabilizing to improving, which means the stock should be stabilizing to improving, very discounted valuation. I think that stock has a lot of runway back up to 10 bucks. So yeah, I, I like what Matterport reported and I like the stock at these levels.
Okay. Uh, switching gears for a moment, uh, and you talked about this briefly earlier. Uh, hedge funds are reporting their quarterly holdings in 13F mm-hmm. filings right now. Uh, yeah. It seems like you've already been through those filings. Uh, what are the big money investors doing right now? Right. Yeah. So I just wanted to turn the page to kind of look at a lot of um, what's going on. Because I wrote down a couple notes about 13Fs that I found interesting. Uh, you want to know what was a really well-bought stock uh, last quarter <laughs> was a stock we've talked about plenty on this call, and that's Rivian. Uh, 13F hmm. filings show that hedge fund institutions, et cetera, added about 36 million shares of Rivian uh, in the third quarter of 2022. So Rivian was a very popular buy. That's one thing I noticed right off the bat. And it was actually the most popular EV stock bought in terms of number of shares purchased. Tesla was obviously the biggest in terms of dollar value, and that's because its market cap is enormous. So uh, you can't really look at that. But in terms of number of shares added, Rivian was the most popular EV stock. So I think that that's a really interesting tidbit. Another thing that I noticed was there was a lot of headline energy selling. That on a net net basis, energy was uh, added to more portfolios than subtracted in the quarter. But the people that got in early on the energy trade, on the oil trade, uh, names like Carl Icahn, names like Stanley Druckenmiller, David Tepper, uh, they actually eliminated a lot of their oil positions, oil and natural gas positions, and reduced others. So we saw a lot of the early movers ditching their energy investments and, you know, raking in massive profits from that. Kudos to them. Fantastic trade. But now they're paring back that position, paring back their bullishness on the energy trades. And that was as of the third quarter end. So that's a little bit old information right now, 45 days old right now. So I would imagine that since then, they've even paired them back further, um, given the selling pressure um, that we're seeing. So. Uh, I found that pretty interesting, that smart money appears to be ditching the energy trade. And smart money was on the energy trade very smartly early on. So the fact that they're ditching now, I think, is a sign that the smart money is selling to the dumb money at the top and we're about to crash in in those energy names. So I think that's definitely happening. Um, A couple other things that I noticed was there were a lot of – a lot of clean energy buying, um, a name, Bloom Energy, another hydrogen name that we've talked about. That was another one of the most purchased stocks in the quarter. Um, Roblox was very well purchased as well. I know we've talked about that name before. That's interesting to me because their user metrics uh, have been very ho-hum recently. So it's interesting to see hedge funds mm. are getting pretty bullish on, on Roblox. So I found that that pretty interesting. Consumer discretionary names were big adders in the quarter, and I think that speaks to the resilience of the consumer. The consumer is still spending quite a bit of money, has a lot of excess savings. We talked about it on a previous uh, podcast that the consumer has been saving money for 15 years, basically. So they got a lot of money to spend today, even though they um, are looking at a shaky economy and their sentiment's low and their confidence is low and the labor market's weakening. They still have a lot of excess savings. So the, the resilient consumer is a story that hedge funds appear to be piling into because consumer discretionary stocks were the biggest net positive change in the quarter uh, in terms of position sizing for for hedge funds. So uh, I found that really interesting as well. Um, and then, yeah, th- those are pretty much my my big, big findings. Let's see if I can – Netflix was a big adder in the quarter. Uh, Luminar, we've talked about Luminar on this call before, self-driving mm-hmm. firm. That was a big, big ad in the quarter. 
Uh, Amazon was a really popular buy, really popular buy, about 58 million shares of Amazon purchased in the quarter. So that was a really big buy. Uh, the most popular, uh, most widely added big tech stock was Amazon. So that's, that's interesting. Hmm. Um, so yeah, th- those are some of the, the early findings. I haven't run through all the reports yet, but, um, they were, there were some interesting tidbits there that we gleaned from our first kind of run through of them. Is it is it telling you anything in the grander scheme of things, or is it just kind of taking uh, your observations uh, right now to report back smart later? Money is, smart money is looking to buy the dip in in big tech. Um, Tesla, Netflix, Amazon, very well added. So uh, smart money is getting bullish on the drop in big tech uh, as an opportunity. Um, smart money is really bullish on Rivian as an electric vehicle potential disruptor, more so than Lucid. Um, and smart money is starting to pare back and wean off the energy trade. So those are my three big takeaways from looking at the 13F so far. Okay. All right. Well, that covers our topics, but we definitely have some fan questions this week. Uh, starting off with Ian S. Will quantitative tightening the runoff of the Fed's $9 trillion balance sheet create a fundamental change in liquidity, triggering another market crash? Uh, great question. And no, I don't think so. Just given all the things we've talked about before, I don't think that's, that's really going to happen all that much. Um, I think the Fed is going to pivot much sooner than a lot of people expect because of uh, quicker than expected crash in inflation and quicker than expected uh, weakening in the labor market. That I see the Fed turning more dovish than expected, sooner than expected. And for all this worry about quantitative tightening and rate hikes and all that stuff to be out the window within six to 12 months. Okay. Uh, next question from CS Low, and I think a bunch of people had this question. Hi, Luke. What's your take on Open now? It's now at an all-time low, and you said mm. at an earlier episode that if Open can survive this housing market storm, they will, etc. Question is, can they? What are your thoughts on Open going into distressed bankruptcy based on their current financials, and are they still a hold, a sell, or a buy to you now? Right. So I, yes, I think the thesis on Open Door remains. If they can survive this housing market crisis, the stock will mm-hmm. absolutely freaking soar by the most I've ever seen any stock soar from current levels. I think that is the thesis. <laughs> and then the question is on that if, which is what the you know the, the question that you just posed is, can they actually survive? I mean, the housing market is getting rough. The waters are choppy. The sharks are swimming. There's blood in the water. It's, it is a very rough housing market. But Open Door has $1.5 billion in cash on its balance sheet. They just fired 20% of their employees, and they're running EBITDA losses of about $300 million a quarter. So that means they have, at current run rates, Five quarters of burn on their balance sheet with cash without tapping additional financing. And that burn rate is likely to improve in the coming quarters because the housing market is likely to improve in the coming quarters. And they've reduced their staff. So operating expenses will be reduced in the coming quarters. So I think they actually are looking at probably a hundred to two hundred million dollar EBITDA loss run weight, so long as the housing market remains depressed. They got 1.5 billion in the cat on uh, the balance sheet in cash. So that puts them in a 2024, 2025 in terms of runway for liquidity without tapping additional resources. There is absolutely 0% chance that the housing market remains 
in doldrums for three, four years. It's going to be in doldrums so long as the Fed's hiking rates. And as soon as they capitulate and turn, everything's going to turn on for the better of the housing market. So I actually think that open door is going to be completely fine. Um, and I think there is there is the risk of bankruptcy is much lower than what is priced into the stock today. And that the the risk reward asymmetry is in favor of the bulls at current levels. Now, something you also have to remember with respect to open door is that they buy and sell on a 90-day basis. So it doesn't really matter if the housing market continues to drop. What matters is that how much the housing market drops on a 90-day basis. And what we just went through was probably maybe the worst phase of that. That what we just went through was the peak turning into decline. So Open Door was buying into the peak, and in the quarter they started selling on declines. It was like the worst timing for them was that was the quarter they just went through. <laughs> right now they're buying into a market that is actually slow. So their models are much more conservative. They're buying under. They're buying low because remember they're buying homes from people. So the people they're mm -hmm. buying from are also in the same position that they're selling with. Right? They're selling into a market where they're having to cut prices, cut prices. Reduce. They're also buying from people that are having to cut prices, cut prices, cut prices, reduce. So the market has grown more balanced for them. Whereas last quarter, they were buying into a hot market and selling into a cold market. Terrible, terrible recipe. Now they're buying into a cold market and selling into a cold market. So yes, it's not a hot market. It's not good, but it's much more balanced than it was the previous quarter. So on a net net basis, the stock has been absolutely crushed. It is as cheap as heck right now. And the only reason you don't buy it is if you think it's going to go under. And it going under is a very real possibility. But given the math I just laid out, $1.5 in cash, probably going to move into $100 million, $200 million EBITDA loss run weight. They have avenues for additional financing. And I think the housing market improves in 2023 as the Fed turns. You know, I think, pretty strongly think that this is a ridiculous sell-off in Open Door. Um, and that fortune favors the bold and that the bold who buy the dip here could stand to make a, a lot of money over the next you know several years. And it, it would be an absolute shame, in my opinion, if, if Open Door did end up going bankrupt, because I think the business model, uh, the business idea, the product, the technology, the value prop is, is tremendous. Eventually, somebody will do what they're doing and become a behemoth, a massive multi-hundred billion dollar empire. I think it can be them. I think it will be them. But if it's not them, then what I'm going to do is close up shop <laughs> on them and go and find the next company that's going to do it. Because somebody is going to be the Amazon of housing. Somebody's going to do it. Open Door had all it has all the right tools in place. They just got hit with the worst housing market since 2008 that a lot of people didn't see coming. That sucks. That's unfortunate. I think they can weather the storm. I think they will weather the storm. I think the stock can soar from here. But if they don't, pack up and we'll find the next one because somebody's going to do it. Somebody mm -hmm. is going to do exactly what they're doing at scale, very successfully, making a lot of money. Um, and I, I, again, I think Open Door will be able to do that. Now, the reason why I'm really bullish on it, them getting to the other side and then becoming a giant is the housing market goes through what it's going through right now once every 10 to 15 years. And the only reason Open Door is struggling right now is not because the housing market is poor. They're struggling because the housing market is poor and Open Door hasn't reached economies of scale yet. Right. If Open Door had massive national scale, then they would be able to operate. Mm. 
at five, three, four percent gross margins because that would be huge gross profits and more than enough gross profits to offset the OPEX base and produce positive EBITDA. So let's say they get through this down cycle, then it's going to be another 15 or 20 years before another housing market downturn. We're at 2035, 2040. When that housing market downturn hits, Open Door will have tremendous economies of scale and they'll still be EBITDA, massively EBITDA positive in the midst of that downturn. So that's why I'm very bullish. They have to get through this, a bad housing market without economies of scale. And if they do, there is runway for them to be a hundred year company. That's how I look at it. I'm still mm. bullish. I understand a lot of people have, have not done well in the position. I'm sorry about that. It has been a horrible <laughs> open door stock, a horrible downturn open door stock. But mm. there was a horrible downturn in Amazon. There was a horrible downturn in Microsoft, horrible downturn in Apple, horrible downturn in all the tech giants that you know and love today that made people millionaires in, in the matter of 10 years or more. Um, and I, I still believe Open Door Stock can can pull that off. It just has to get through what is the toughest housing market since 2008 and since, you know, before then, pretty much ever. So the second toughest housing market of all time, huh, timing sucks, but I think they can get through. And if they do, yes, I think there is a huge runway on the other side for them. All right. Uh, next question from Tels7. Uh, I know you don't want to divulge too much on certain automation stocks, but is Symbotic a decent buy right now? Or is it wise to wait after its recent stock market listing or leave well alone? So the thing that's cool about Symbotic is they have the guaranteed Walmart contract, right? I mean, they're Walmart's automators. So mm -hmm. Walmart's not going anywhere. Walmart's got a lot of warehouses. Doesn't matter if the economy goes, you know, woo, 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 side, side, upside, down, up, down, whatever. It doesn't matter what the economy does. Walmart's still going to automate their warehouses through that guaranteed contract through 2028. So Symbotic has basically massive guaranteed revenues over the next five, six, seven, eight years. That's that's a pretty cool feature of, of the company. Everything else is just kind of, you know, icing on the cake at that point. And they are winning some more contracts. So is Symbotic a good buy today? I mean, yeah, I think so. I really do think so. I think it's a strong company, strong leadership, very good revenue visibility, great business model, great technology. And it's coming to uh to market at the perfect time where we need those automation solutions. So uh, Symbotic, ticker SYM, yeah, I very much like the stock. Okay. Uh, next question from Pablo Andres. Would really like to know why all of the deflationary, deflationary indicators didn't show up on any of the CPI reports. Great. So I think that question was probably asked in our last video, which was two weeks ago. Um, and they didn't before, at that point in time because they have a lag, right? We're looking at leading indicators. Inflation's a lagging indicator. But look, they did, they're did. Mm. finally showing up now. That the leading indicators have finally showed up now that the, the lag is hitting. So CPI did crash in October. PPI it did crash in October and stocks are rallying as a result. So I think what those reports show us is that there are a lot of people asking the question you were asking. Why? Looking at all these indicators, why aren't they showing up in the headline numbers yet? Why aren't they showing up in the headline numbers yet? Well, they finally showed up. They're leading indicators. It takes time for them to work through the economy and show up in the headline numbers. But they finally did. And so now people are like, oh, it started. 
So now those leading indicators, <laughs> the deflationary signals everyone's been looking at on a forward basis are now showing up in the headline numbers. So they're going to keep showing up in the headline mm-hmm. numbers. The leading indicators are still pointing down. So October was was a big month for disinflation. November will be one too. So will December. We're now starting to see the dominoes fall for disinflation. And that's very bullish for for, for the stock market. But yes, it, it took a while for those leading indicators to show up in the headline inflation reports, but they finally are. And I think they're going to stay there for a while. All right. Next question from Rob Norman. We need automation. I agree. So why is BGRY priced for bankruptcy? Uh, the same reason every other um, post SPAC stock, uh, hyper growth tech stock is priced for bankruptcy. Everybody's worried about the Fed. Everybody's worried that these companies are, I mean, these companies were born um, on the premise that they'd be able to get cap. They were just grow at all costs, grow, 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 grow run losses. When you run out of cash, go raise more money. That's how these companies were born. But now that the, the state of affairs has changed in the economy, interest rates have changed, financing environment has changed. Now those models don't work. And these companies are having to rethink their strategies. And, you know, everyone's looking at the balance sheets. How much runway do you have? Lot of, lot of you do. But as soon as 2023 rolls around and the Fed pivots and, and things look differently, then all of a sudden the outlooks on these companies are going to change as well. Cheap financing is going to exist again. They're going to grow, 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 grow. And it's not going to be all about, you know, conserving capital. So I think Berkshire Gray is just a microcosm of, of the broader market. And that's something that I've noticed a lot in 2022 is individual fundamentals really haven't mattered that much. And that sucks because that's what I do, right? Like I love to look at companies, understand the long-term winners, invest in them, and then and then chill out and let them do their thing. But in 2022, that hasn't mattered. It doesn't matter if your company's reporting double beats and raising forecast or missing estimates and cutting forecast. Regardless of what the company does, the stock is trading in a group. And that's mm-hmm. how group trade is, is dominated in 2022. So why is Berkshire Gray price for bankruptcy? Because it's in a group of stocks that the market has hated. That's simple. Now, what we have to do as investors is go into that group, find the ones that are not going to go bankrupt, buy them, wait for the tides to turn, and then let them rip higher. That's what we have to do. Group trading creates idiosyncratic opportunities. That's what we need to go and identify those opportunities. And and Berkshire Gray, uh, in my opinion, is absolutely one of them. All right. Uh, last question from Richard Majeski. What's going on with Too Simple and the whole data transfer to China? Too Simple is a uh, it's a mess right now. Too Simple is is no bueno. Um, <laughs> this is an example of when bad actors ruin great technology. Too Simple had mm. fantastic technology, and it looked like a very promising. Uh, self-driving startup that was going to be a leader in autonomous trucking. That it had the technology resources to do that. But there has been the, the the problem with these early stage companies is it relies the bull features relies heavily on talent because the technology for self-driving is not fully developed. It is developing. And in order to get to the fully developed stage for commercialization, you need the talent to keep developing the technology. Talent is everything for these early stage startups. When your ability to attract and retain top talent is compromised, your ability to succeed as an early stage tech startup is also significantly compromised. And that's where Too Simple finds itself right now. They've had 
two CEO changes in the past six months. They're selling data to China. They got startups over here. There's a board investigations. The SEC is coming down. Like that is such a mess. If I'm a top hardware engineer interested in self-driving, coming out of Stanford, coming out of Caltech, coming out of MIT, why on earth would I go to Too Simple? I'm going to go to Luminar. I'm going to go to Aurora. I'm going to go to Waymo. I'm not going to go to Too Simple where there's an SEC investigation. I don't even know who's in charge anymore. The board's <laughs> been cleaned out. Um, like, what? I'm not going to go work. The, the stock is is down in, in the doldrums. I'm not going to go work there. Absolutely mm. not. I'm going to go to one of the other self-driving startups. Alternatively, if I'm at Too Simple and I'm seeing all this go down, I'm like, uh, knock, knock, Luminar, Austin Russell, are you there? You got a job mm. for me? Like their ability to retain and attract top talent has been significantly compromised by their optical issues, by their mis-execution, by their mismanagement. And by what appears to be maybe borderline illegal behavior. So mm-hmm. Too Simple is, in my opinion, screwed. I think they okay. are absolutely screwed. And it's unfortunate <laughs> because they did have some smart people there doing some really cool things with a really great technology base. But it's a really competitive industry. And talent is everything. Talent is going to churn. Talent's going to mm-hmm. leave. And new talent's not going to come. So when that new talent goes to Luminar, when talent at Too Simple goes to Luminar, goes to Aurora, goes to those other firms – those firms are going to create better technology and distance themselves from Too Simple, and Too Simple is going to be left left in the dust, quite frankly. So that's how I look at Too Simple right now. Unfortunately, it's it's a company that that had a lot of promise and probably will not pan out because of bad actors ruining good technology. All right. Well, great insights for our listeners and HGI investors, as always. Luke, any last words before we wrap? You know what, Aaron? No, I got to get on a flight in like an hour. So I got to go pack my bags and stuff. <laughs> but um, <laughs> last words. All right. Last words. Well, in that I, case. Yeah. Last words, none. <laughs> okay. Well, in that case, thank you everyone for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comment section. We love to hear any feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover and see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Please don't forget to like and subscribe and we will see you all next week. Until then, bye all.